Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dr. James Brooks, Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director, and I'm delighted to welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited this land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee, Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. I'm gonna run through some upcoming program, uh, program events. So if you could use this time just to make sure any phones or devices you have are switched to silent, I would very much appreciate that. So today at 1 p.m., if people are feeling hungry after this lecture, we will be hosting Richmond-based baker, Jennifer Gorslein in the muse Museum Cafe just across the way. And on this Friday, you may have seen some of the promotional materials on the lecture screen behind me. November 4th, the VMHC will host its inaugural first Fridays at the VMHC. And this will be a family-friendly event between 5 and 8 p.m. when the museum will offer free admission to all galleries. Next Thursday, on November 10th, the VMHC will host Pocahontas Reframed. The museum will show 11 short films by and about native people, followed by a discussion amongst a distinguished panel of Virginia tribal leaders. Our next lecture on December 8th at noon will be Jeffrey D. Wirt's talk titled, The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for the Bloody Angle. And it's important to note that this talk will be held in an online format only. To introduce today's program, Today's lecture is going to regale to us the 122-year history of the Old Bay Line, more formally known as the Baltimore Steam Packet Company. The line ferried passengers and freight between Baltimore and Norfolk on mammoth vessels that were famous for their superb cuisine, impeccable service, and fine accommodations. The company was called up for war service on several occasions, and by the time it ceased operations in 1962, it was the oldest steamship company in the United States. And so here to float our boats this afternoon is Jack Shawn, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist with nearly 50 years in the business. He is the author of Lost Chester River Steamboats, a history of steam navigation on Maryland's Chester River, as well as co-author for Majesty at Sea, a history of early 20th century passenger liners. Jack is, always, uh, is also distinguished by the fact that he is the former editor-in-chief of the quarterly journal of the Steamship Historical Society of America. Please join me in welcoming Jack Sean. Well, it's very gratifying to see everybody today. Thank you so much for coming out on what has turned out to be a, a beautiful weather day. And I hope that uh, before the, we finish here that maybe I'll rekindle some, some memories and, and bring back some, some thoughts of days gone by when it was such a wonderful opportunity to uh, sail down the Chesapeake Bay. I already hit the button the wrong way. <laughs> okay. 
Um, as James said, this, this company was the oldest steamship company in the United States, founded in 1840 and operated until 1962 when changing times uh, necessitated its, its demise in the face of trucks, cars, planes, trains, and, and what have you. Now, when I was eight years old, I got a chance to travel on the old Bay Line. My mother was a nurse at Baltimore's Marine Hospital, and one of her patients was Captain Chapman of the city of Richmond. Well, they got a discussion going, and he said, well, bring your family and come on down, take a trip down with down the bay. So we went down, got on the boat the nights. Now, this was a 12-hour overnight trip, 6.30 p.m. departure from Baltimore, 6.30 a.m. arrival in Norfolk. Well, by the time that evening was over, the captain had taken me into the wheelhouse. He had to let me grab that great big wooden spoked wheel, which was bigger than I was, look at the radar screen and blow the whistle when we were coming into Hampton Roads. Now, you know, if that doesn't captivate an eight-year-old, what will? And so I have been entranced by this, this subject uh, ever since, and I've been researching it for years, and I, I'm looking forward to sharing some of this with you, not only just to give a little bit of the history of this company, but also to kind of give a sense of what it was like to travel on these beautiful old steamboats. So let's get the ball rolling here. Let's first of all talk about what is a steamboat? Well, this is a an interesting uh, juxtaposition here. I think you have a photograph up at the top of the old Bay Line steamer City of Richmond, which was one of the last two steamers to operate between Baltimore and Norfolk, and a cutaway showing how these boats were laid out. The photograph was done by well-known Baltimore journal, uh, photojournalist Hans Marx, and I am indebted so much to his family for allowing me to make use of his collection, and very many of his illustrations are uh, in, in this, in both the book and the lecture, and uh, they really, really made the, made the program as far as I was concerned. But if, let's take a look at the boat, boat here. Okay, they got five decks. First one down here, right at the waterline. Then the next one up here is the freight deck or main deck, they called it. The next one up above with the square windows that was called the saloon deck. That's what they called it, saloon deck. And then the next one up is gallery deck right here. And then the top deck is the hurricane deck with the wheelhouse up in front. If you come down here and look at the cutaway, you can see that here's, here's the wheelhouse. Dining saloon is right underneath of the wheelhouse. Passenger accommodations all the way back along these top two decks here. And back here, you had a gallery that went across over the top deck that you could look down onto the deck below. And then the machinery spaces were all the way down at the bottom of the ship. Engine room, boiler room, crew accommodations, and cargo was carried in, in these areas. These were both passenger and freight boats. These were not excursion boats or cruise ships that went out in only in nice weather. They went 375 days a year. They battled storms. They battled ice. These were sturdy vessels. But begs the question, whoops, go back. Skip it. Begs the question of when you think steamboat, what do you think of? You probably think of this, don't you? Mississippi River, Ohio River steamboats, they were just as different from the Chesapeake Bay steamboats as the moon is from the sun. Uh, these vessels were light vessels. They weren't heavily constructed. They didn't have to be. They didn't have to contend with heavy weather conditions out, out on the rivers like the bay boats did. And they, as a rule, they didn't last very long. But I think the reason is that they are so famous is because of that guy over there, Mark Twain, who was quite the PR man for Mississippi River steamboats. And I dare say that if the Chesapeake had had somebody like him, they would have been equally as well known. So here's our cutaway of the city of Richmond, built in 1913, lasted until 1962. And here's looking down at the decks. Now, we're going to start from the bottom. This is the bottom deck, freight deck, first one above the waterline. Here you have passenger accommodations back here, 
a, a woman's uh, smoking room saloon that's back in this area. These were second class passengers all the way back here at the very end of the ship. Then this was all open for cargo. They could wheel cargo on board, stow it on this deck, and then use these electronic elevators to take it down onto the lower decks. Passenger accommodations on the next two decks up. Uh, all of these are staterooms arrayed down the side of the ship, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them in a row. These boats could carry between 400 and 600 passengers in overnight accommodations. And the, one of the things that made them particularly attractive was the fact that the dining room, which for so many years had been in the lower parts of the ship, was now moved up to the forward part of the vessel, and it was right underneath of the, of the wheelhouse. So this was basically the basic design pretty much for all of the steamers that operated on the Chesapeake Bay down through the years. Now, if you were going to take a trip on the Old Bay Line, you would start in Baltimore at Pier 3 Pratt Street. This is the Old Bay Line's home, as it would have looked like in the 1950s. And you came aboard through that door down there at the bottom, up the steps to the, to the ticket office. You got your ticket. Tickets were really cheap by today's standards, but they were probably quite expensive back then. An overnight passage, just the transportation on the boat, was $10. A stateroom could be gotten for $5.40. And that was the way it was right up until the end of operations in 1961. So you got your ticket from the, from the purser. He gave you the big brass key to the stateroom. And the, the wooden uh, thing that was on the end there, that was in case you dropped it over the side, the, the thing would float and they could hopefully re recover it. So this is where it all started, right here on Pier, Pier 3 Pratt Street in Baltimore, which if you know anything about Baltimore, is not too far from where the, the famous Inner Harbor is located today. Now, steamboats on the Chesapeake be began back in the early days of the 18th century, 1813, 1814. And one of the gentlemen who was really big on bringing these boats to the bay was Captain Edward Tripp from Dorchester County, Maryland, on the eastern shore. He had the idea that regularly scheduled steamboats, which were more reliable in terms of when they would arrive than sailing ships, uh, were the, the way to go. And so starting in 1813, he sailed the first steamboat across the Chesapeake Bay from Baltimore to Rock Hall, Maryland, up on the Upper Eastern Shore. And it was from that beginning that the steamboat era on the Chesapeake Bay blossomed. And in the early days, you had a lot of individual companies, not companies so much, but individuals who were operating steamers. Uh, Joseph Foster, the proprietor of this boat, and James Smith, the proprietor of this boat. And after a while, it got to the point where there were so many of these little operators going that there was not a lot of cohesion in how these, these, these steamboats operated. So it was decided in 1828 that the Maryland and Virginia Steamboat Company would be formed to carry passengers and freight nightly between Baltimore and Norfolk. And it flourished for a number of years, but for lots of, lots of reasons, it fell on hard times toward the, the latter part of the 1830s. And it was reorganized in 1840 as the Baltimore Steam Packet Company, which later became familiarly known as the Old Bay Line. And this advertisement uh, is the very first newspaper advertisement for the Old Bay Line when it started service in 1840. The steamer in the upper left-hand corner is the Pocahontas. She was one of the very first steamers to operate for the Bay Line. She wasn't built by them. She came over from the Maryland-Virginia Line. And there are no photographs, unfortunately, but this is um, the best rendition rendition that we have of what that vessel might have looked like. And the waterfront in those days was really quite a sprawling operation. This is Spears Wharf in Baltimore, where the steamboats for the Old Bay Line boats left. They actually were at the far end of the pier in the, in the, in the picture here, and in the foreground sailing ships that, that came from around the world, and the buildings that lined the piers. They were uh, steamship companies. They were shippers. They were 
of storehouses and the like. So it was really quite a, a busy and a congested area. There we go. Finally, in 1842, the Bayline felt it was in such good condition that they could order, order their first brand new steamboat. So it was a steamer named the Medora. And on April 14th, 1842, she was about to leave Baltimore on her trial trip. Now, that means that she was still owned by the builder at that point, not owned by the steamship company. So what transpired was no fault of, no fault of the steamship company. But as soon as she started to back out of the dock, the paddle wheels turned twice, and there was this enormous explosion sent the boiler flying up in the air. And 35 people were killed in that explosion, including the, the president of the, of the old bay line and its chief mate, um, agent. Well, not to be put, put down by this accident, they turned immediately around, salvaged what could be salvaged of the old Medora, rebuilt her, gave her a new name. She was the Steamboat Herald. She operated on the Chesapeake Bay until about the 1860s and then had an even longer career all the way up on the Hudson River until as late as 1888. But that is a typical early Chesapeake Bay steamer, uh, low profile, tall smokestack, paddle wheels, and we'll get into a little bit more of the details of, of what these ships, what they look, what's on them. Um, it didn't take long in the 19th century for uh, maritime architecture to make great advances. And as soon as 1854, the steamer Louisiana came out and she was considered to have been the most elegant steamer on the Chesapeake Bay up to that point much larger vessel too, 266 feet long. Now at this point, the boats were all wood. There were wooden hulls, there were wooden superstructures. And because they were all wood, they had all of this heavy machinery right in the middle of the, of the hull. And it sometimes caused the hull to sag, what they called hogging. And so that white structure that you see up here on the top, this is called a hog frame. And it was basically added bracing that was put onto the ship to keep the, the, the middle part of the ship from sagging down or hogging. So you saw this a, a lot on the very early steamers on the Chesapeake. Now this device up here on the top is interesting. This is called a walking beam, and that's connected to the crankshaft for the paddle wheels, the early boats all being paddle wheelers. So that walking beam goes up and down like this, and that's where it gets its name. And there was, they said there were so many children down through the years who spent hours just transfixed by this, this thing going up and down. But a very, very typical boat. She was supposed to have been decorated very nicely inside, but uh, apparently no pictures have, have survived. Now, as you get a little further along in the story, railroads are starting to appear, appear in the Tidewater, Virginia, and Maryland area. And it didn't take long before the, the steamboats and the, um, and the railroads got together with partnerships. And this is an advertisement of Bayline. It is, it is a Bayline advertisement because the name of the president is down there at the bottom, but it, it promotes the Louisiana. It promotes her sister ship, the New North Carolina, which came aboard a couple years later. You tied in with the uh, railroad going down to the south, the Seaboard and Roanoke Railroad, which later became the Seaboard uh, Airline Railway. And this basic, this ad shows that this was essentially a transportation network all the way from New York down to uh, into, into North Carolina. And this was the bread and butter of, of the of the old, of the Baltimore Steam Packing Company in those days. This is another view of early uh, ports in Baltimore. This was the company's Union Dock, which they moved to in the uh, 1850s. And it, it shows again those those counting houses, those big buildings and everything that are on there. Lots of room for, for cargo to be stored. And unfortunately, a couple of times down through the years, cargo being uh, stored there waiting for shipment uh, and managed to catch fire. And they had some pretty dramatic fires down there on the docks. But the steamer at the end of the pier here is on this interesting old map, 
described as the Louisiana, but this one's got two smokestacks side by side, and she only had one. The, uh, the uh, North Carolina's sister ship, the, the um, um, Virginia came out in some years, some, no, Louisiana came out some years later, and uh, she was very much the same size. They were very elegant vessels, but she met an early end. She burned very early in her career, and so the Bay Line was forced to look elsewhere for a suitable steamer. They wanted to have ships that were equal in terms of their accommodation, their size, and their speed, and so they found the vessel named the Adelaide, uh, operating off of the coast of Maine in an open ocean route. And so she came down to Chesapeake Bay and gave many years of, of, of good service. The painting is by C. Leslie Orsler, uh, probably the best known of Chesapeake Bay steamboat men. And I'm very privileged to be able to feature some of his paintings uh, in the book and here in the, in the lecture. When you get to the uh, latter part of the 1850s, early 1860s, of course, you're starting to talk civil war and worrying about North versus South. And at that period, Bayline took uh, a delivery of several new ships. The Georgiana was built in 1859. Again, about a 200-footer. Uh, the Thomas A. Morgan came shortly thereafter. But immediately, these vessels, which also were the first iron-hulled vessels of the Bayline, you notice they don't have that hog bracing over the top of them anymore. These were almost immediately put into service by the Federal Navy, uh, operating as transports or operating as, as mail ships that went from Hampton Roads up the, up the York River. Uh, so they kept things going through, through the warriors, which were very difficult for the steamers on the Chesapeake Bay because they were all put into service in one form or another. They were run very, very hard. By the time the war was over, uh, we were looking at the need for either complete rehabilitation or complete replacement. And one of the boats that was brought along to replace these vessels that were worn out by the Civil War was the steamer Florida, which was built in 1876. And it's interesting that even though they had already had iron hull steamers, this one was built with a uh, with a wooden hull. She was the last wooden hull steamer of the Bay Line, but I like to call attention to these paddle boxes that are that cover the, the paddle. They were real works of art. You've got up close to those all kinds of very intricate paintings, carvings. A lot of times there'd be an American eagle in the middle of them. One of the boats had a, had a, a in the middle of the, the um, wheel, they had a, a look like a beehive. And somebody said, well, what do you put a beehive on a steamboat for? And they said, well, because she's as busy as a bee. So, but uh, this was the last wooden hull vessel built by the company. Now, in the early days, they were powered by burning wood logs. And later over the years, that gradually gravitated over to coal. And later, at the very, very end, uh, you had oil fired. So these, these boats were, you know, these stokers were down there the whole trip, and they're shoveling the, snow, shoveling the, the coal around. Uh, and again, on the way this, this this ship is set up, here's your passenger accommodations up here, and your cargo area is down here. And the dining room back in the early days was way down here on the deck underwater, so you didn't get a chance to see the scenery going by. But that was um, that was rectified later on. Another painting by Mr. Orser was the Virginia. She was one of two two sister ships, the Virginia and the Carolina, uh, built in the 1870s. These were iron hulled steamers, and again, no. No hog beaming. Uh, and they were, they again had very, very long lives. They lasted on the Chesapeake for many years and then ultimately ended up their days ro ro uh, operating up on the Tadasac River and the Saguenay up in Canada, going as late as 1933. The steamer Tennessee on the, uh, on the right there, this kind of brings it a little bit more close to home here in Richmond because she was designed to run from Baltimore up the James River to Richmond. 
they had tried running one of those big side wheelers of Virginia, I believe it was, but turned out she was too wide and too bulky to control in the upper reaches of the James, which tends to be a little twisty and has some rocks here and there. And so they decided to build a steamer, a steamer exclusively for this operation. The Tennessee came out in 1898. She was smaller than most of the other boats. She was propeller driven. She had two propellers. The only bay boat that ever had two propellers. And so she was able to make the maneuvers up and down the James River a lot easier than, than the uh, big side wheelers. And in 1887 came a real landmark vessel, the passenger steamer Florida, uh, uh, Georgia, which was built in, in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, she was an absolutely beautiful boat. These are beautiful lines. And if you're into steamboats, you really start to wax ecstatic about the designs of some of these ships. But this one is very important because that design, that classic design, long and low and lean, this sort of set the stage for the design of just about every steamboat on Chesapeake Bay that, that, that followed over the years. And again, she had a long life, lasting until as late as 1937. She was said to have had brass beds and deep pile carpeting and, and all of this really luxurious accommodation. And unfortunately, no illustrations of it seem to have survived. So you get to uh, the decade of the 1870s, and now you're starting to see competition on, on the run from Baltimore to Norfolk. And the, the first competition came from an outfit called the Baltimore, West Point, and Richmond Railroad, the steamship element of that was the Baltimore and York River Line, with three steamers, Louisiana, Havana, and Sioux. And they ran from Baltimore down the Chesapeake, up the York River to West Point, Virginia. You transferred to a southern railway train. An hour later, you're in Richmond. It was really, really a very efficient operation. And uh, although this wasn't in direct competition to the Bay Line's Baltimore to Norfolk operation, Wait till you see what happens later on. These are the Bayline terminals in the different cities. The, the big building here on the upper left is, is Pier 10 Light Street in Baltimore. This is a, like a 200-foot frontal of this big uh, green pier that they had here. Just dominated the entire steamboat area because that part of Baltimore is nothing but steamboats. It went down the street, crossed around to the other street, and it could be said that on any given day, you'd have 12 steamboats tied up at the dock loading up for the nightly trip and another 12 out making their runs. So there were, there were steamers everywhere. The scene on the upper right is in Norfolk. That's the foot of Main Street, and that's where Nauticus is today. And this was the old Bay Lines home for many years, and that was one of their later steamers, either the Virginia or the Florida, tying up at the dock there. And on the trip down the bay, right almost from the beginning, the boats would stop at Old Point Comfort, Virginia, that was the place prior to the Civil War and shortly thereafter where a lot of people liked to go for vacation. Nobody had heard of Miami Beach at that point, so it was go to Hampton Roads and, and take advantage of the, the, the temperate climate there. And the building in the background, the building in the foreground is the government dock that which the steamboats tied up for so many years. And in the background is this first incarnation of the Hotel Chamberlain. There had been another hotel prior to that called the Hotel Hygieia, and then later there was a bigger Chamberlain, which still exists, I think, as a senior citizen facility. And this was, again, a very, very popular call for the boats, not only in terms of passengers, but they transshipped a lot of freight through Old Point Comfort. Well, now we start to really get into the competition. The company called the Baltimore, Chesapeake, and Richmond Steamboat Company, which was an outgrowth of the river, York River line that, we're, that we just saw, the James River line that we just saw. And they came on in early 1885, and they decided they were really going to try to heat things up. So they, they designed four almost identical vessels beginning in 1885 and going until 1896 to 
basically compete with the old bay line. And this is when intentional comp intense competition really, really started. The Baltimore, Chesapeake, and Richmond Steamboat Company was originally going to keep the old route up to up the York River to West Point, but then they decided, hey, we're going to we're going to go to Baltimore and Norfolk Field and give them a run for their money. So they did, and needless to say, Bayline people were not the slightest bit happy about this. Um, and at about this time, you had uh, steamers that were being built. It seemed like it was a classic case of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, I'm going to build one. Will you build one? Well, let's build another one over here. And I think between 1892, if I remember right, 13 new steamers were built to operate between both of these companies, the Baltimore Steam Packing Company and the, um, the Baltimore Chesapeake and Richmond Steamboat Company. And I have to say at this point, the name Old Bay Line, uh, it was originally, just simply originally the, old, the Baltimore Steam Packing Company, and then casually it was called the Bay Line. But then after World War II, when the competition started, we said we need to we need to capitalize on our our, our long business here. So we are going to call you the old established Bayline, which was shortened to old Bayline. And then later on, it was they, they went another go around with competition, old established Bayline, and then the new establishment. It was really so really kind of confusing. And it, and it was not always a friendly competition. But in 1892, Bayline, it's part of this ongoing uh, assortment of constructions that were taking place, brought out the steamer Alabama, 1892. She was 1893. She was different in that she was a steel hull vessel, which was an improvement over iron and particularly elegant inside. And now we start to get some interior views of some of these ships. So here's some scenes aboard the Alabama. The middle picture shows the, basically the main lounge on the ship. Uh, this is the saloon deck on the bottom, the first, the first passenger deck, and then the gallery up above is the gallery deck. And you could walk around there and look down into the, the saloon deck area. They all had um, stained glass domes up in the overhead and indirect lighting through clear story windows around the side. And it was always a grand staircase on the, each of these boats, the front of which was brass facing. It just glowed. It's gorgeous. And at the top, there was always a big plate glass mirror. And the story seems to be that they put these mirrors at the top of these um, staircases to make the room kind of appear bigger. The boats were about 290 some feet long at that point. So they were fairly large vessels, made these rooms uh, themselves very, very big and very, very attractive. So here we go. The two lines are starting to get at each other tooth and nail. The Baltimore Steam Packing Company said, we were here first. It's our line. You can't come in here. And the Chesapeake line with the Baltimore, Chesapeake, and Richmond Steamboat Company says, well, yes, we can because the Southern Railway's best terminals are down in Norfolk. They're not at West Point any longer. So they they charged in and they, they started running boats between Baltimore and Norfolk. And the bad blood between the two of those companies was really, really something to talk about. Um, they, they fought it out in the papers. Uh, there were rate wars. They dropped the rates to try to make one more attractive than the other. In fact, the rate wars got so bad at one point that they didn't charge pass they didn't charge passengers anything to make the trip. And you realize before too long that is not that is not the way that you keep yourself in business. So they finally got themselves squared away and realized we have to work together. So they did. They had an agreement. Bayline would stay away from the York River and the James River. Uh, Baltimore, Richmond, Frederick uh, Steamboat Company would stay away from the Norfolk Run. The deal was in effect for five years. If anybody violated it after five years, there was a big financial a penalty and violated they did. Baltimore Chesapeake and Richmond Steamboat Company was reorganized in 1900 as the Chesapeake Steamship Company and it advertised itself as two lines. The Chesapeake line 
which ran between Baltimore and Norfolk, and the uh, York River Line, which ran between Baltimore and, and West Point. And this, this was spirited, spirited competition. And this vessel, the Augusta, came out in 1900. She was probably one of the strangest looking vessels on the bay with her really tall smokestacks, uh, but again, elegant. They said that this one, this one probably brought brass fittings on the interior to new heights that had never been seen before on the Chesapeake. And she was a fast vessel. Uh, she was very popular. She just wasn't very really pretty to look at. And in 1905, 1906, there were at least three new steamers. The uh, Virginia of the Bay Line of 1905 uh, came out in classic, classic design, beautiful vessel, a, a building on the design of the Georgia that we saw before. And here's some of the interior views to give you an idea of the accommodation. Upper and lower berth on the, the left-hand side of the picture. Uh, not all of the rooms had bathrooms, but the ones that did had rooms like this. And then you're looking down the upper deck, the saloon, uh, the gallery deck, down toward the ladder end of, of the ship. At about the same time, the Chesapeake Line was coming out with a big steamer named the Columbia. Bay Line came along a year later. We're going to build the Florida. She's a sister to the Virginia. I mean, it was, it was a real battle. The picture on the left shows passengers on board either the Florida or the Virginia uh, starting their trip out from Baltimore. Interesting the way folks used to dress to travel in those days, wasn't it? They got all dressed up to the nines in order to, to, to take a trip on a steamboat. Today, you wear your cutoffs onto the airplane. <laughs> and then the, the scene down to the lower part was the um, reception room of the, of the Florida. And this is where not only the passengers came aboard and were greeted by the captain uh, when the ship was underway. This was the gentleman's smoking room. All of these interior views of these ships, lots of mahogany, um, woodwork, lots of brass, lots of wrought iron railings. We'll see more of that in the future, but they were just absolutely elegant, and they were advertised as the finest, and that's not supposed to happen there. Hold on. Hit the wrong button. <laughs> Come on. I hit the end button by mistake. <laughs> there we go. All right. Um, so they advertised themselves as the finest and fastest steamers south of New York, because if you knew anything about steamboating in New York, you knew that they fielded absolutely palatial vessels, four, 500 feet long with gingerbread like you wouldn't believe. Ours were not as fancy as that, but they were, they were every bit the, the, the equal in many ways of those New England boats. And they advertised the fact that uh, they carried the U.S. mule, mule, the U.S. mail, <laughs> And they were all fitted with wireless telegraphy, which was a really big deal at that point. In 1911, the, the Chesapeake Steamship Company was so dead set on staying in the Baltimore-Norfolk run that it built two identical steamers, the city of Baltimore and the city of Norfolk, which were the very first new ships for that company since it became the Chesapeake Line. And they were built side by side at Sparrows Point in Baltimore, they were the biggest ships on the bay at that point. They were 297 feet long and had accommodations for 600 passengers. But one of the things that set them apart from the others was that in the old days, the dining room used to be in the after end of the ship, down on the lower deck below the waterline. In this case, they brought the dining room up and gave it the premier position right here, right under the wheelhouse. So that the diners could take not only uh, take advantage not only of the fresh breezes off the water, but watch the landmarks and the scenery and the other ships going by as well. And this is this is the dining room 
on the city of Norfolk. And it was a fairly spacious affair. And it was rather, rather bright, brightly lighted. And the two ships were launched side by side at Sparrows Point in 1911. And they really threw the gauntlet down to the old bay line. We've got these great identical ships. What are you going to do about it? Now, any steamer that sailed up and down the Chesapeake Bay, uh, the officers on the bridge and the officers in the engine room had to keep detailed logs of what was going on. So this is a, a, a log sheet, again, from the collection of Mr. Marks, of the um, one of the log sheets on the Chesapeake Steamship Company for the York River Line. And if you can see it, I don't know how well you can make out the writing, but it, they tell you you have to log in every time you pass a specific lighthouse, a specific point, you pass a specific vessel, so forth and so on and so on. What was the weather like? How many passengers did you have? How many meals did you serve? How much cargo did you have on board? How much water were you drawing? Because that was always obviously pretty important in, in an area where the, the, the water tended to be shallow. So you would see the every, every, day, every day that they ran, they had these log sheets that they had to keep up. So you get through World War I, uh, none of the boats were actually physically called up for service by the government, but they were put into service to carry government personnel. Hampton Roads has all of those military bases. So you had to get soldiers and sailors and whatnot from up north down the Hampton Roads. They took over the boats. People slept where they could on the decks because the staterooms were all gone. Anyhow, the boats were really running to the ground. In fact, Uncle Sam actually ran the company for a while, and they were running to the ground. And one of them, the Virginia, unfortunately caught fire in, eight, in uh, 1919 and was destroyed. So by the time the war came to an end, the Bay Line was left with only two relatively old, old steamers. The Alabama, 1893, and the and the Florida, the Virginia, the Florida from 1907, and when you have a steamship line like this, you want to have at a minimum three vessels, two for the regular service, and one as a backup in case the other one of the others has to be taken out of service for uh, repairs or overhauls or what have you. And they didn't know what to do. What are we going to do here? So it was decided that we're going to really bite the bullet, and we're going to build two big steamers, the likes of which had never been seen on the bay before. The ultimate bayliners, they came out in 1922 and 1923, 330 feet in length, a good 30 feet longer than the city of Norfolk and city of Baltimore. Very, very uh, modern vessels in every respect. Their decoration inside was not quite as elegant as you had on the old Edwardian boats, but these were really miniature passenger liners on the Chesapeake Bay. They could carry 600 um, tons of cargo, 600 passengers in really good accommodations. That's the state of Maryland swinging around with the help of a tugboat in the confines of Baltimore's Inner Harbor. This is a view, these are some views aboard those new vessels. The state of Maryland, the state of Virginia, where sister ships came out just a year apart. Grand Staircase is on the left there, and by this time, you've gotten away from the gingerbread. You don't have the wrought iron railings and, and the carvings and all of that sort of thing. The, the, the style of these boats was described as colonial, and i I think that picture kind of conveys that look. And in this case, the, the uh, gallery went up, not two, but three decks all the way up. And on the right-hand side, it's looking down a corridor. All of those dark doors are mahogany doors leading to staterooms. And in the distance in the back was a palm room where on the trip down the bay at night, passengers could dance the night away to an all-girl band. It was really quite, quite civilized. <laughs> These are accommodations on those, on those new vessels. Uh, the luxury, if you will, that pervaded the exterior rooms on the vessels, the lounges and so forth, really didn't, didn't 
cross over into the stateroom. You're going to stay in the stateroom for what? One one reason, to sleep. So you you had a basic accommodation, but not being enormous with suites and all that sort of thing, they could put more accommodations on there. So it, it, it had a good side to it. The lower picture is what a typical upper and lower berth would have looked like. And the upper one is a, is a full bedroom. You could get double beds. You could get the, the twin beds side by side. You could get the rooms with bathrooms. You could get them with just running water and so forth. So you had a little bit of option for what you wanted to uh, use as your accommodation on your trip. So they built two of these ships, and they were the brainchild of a man named Solomon Davies Warfield, who made his fortune as the president of the Seaboard Airline Railroad and also of the Continental Trust Company, which was one of the biggest banks in the South in the first part of the 20th century. Well, he, uh, he was very unabashedly pro-Southern, and he wanted this steamship line to continue with its pro-Southern leanings. And so he masterminded the construction of those two new vessels. And then in 1928, it was decided that they needed a third identical vessel, but Warfield died before the ship could be completed. And so she was named in his honor as the President Warfield. And boy, did she go on to some adventures later on. This is a picture of her going down the ways at the shipyard in Wilmington, Delaware. Here she is finished, President Warfield, looking beautiful flagship of the line, uh, cuts a beauty, beautiful picture. One of the things that this, these classes of ship had was up here on the hurricane deck, the top deck there, they had an overhang here so that you could come out on the deck. You could be, actually be out there on the deck in all kinds of weather. They hadn't had that on the boats before. And uh, so this is another one of Mr. Hans Marx's outstanding photographs. And I'm told that it was his favorite vessel. So <laughs> it's good that he got himself a great shot here. Now, the couple of people on the ships are very important. A lot of people, a lot of crew members on ships you don't see very much of. But the ones you're most likely to see are the captains. Now, these, these characters were really something. They knew the waters of the Chesapeake Bay like the back of their hand. They didn't need charts. They knew where they were going. If it was foggy, they knew where that lighthouse was or where that buoy was. And these men measured their terms of service on these boats in decades, not in years. Captain William C. Almey in the upper right hand, upper left-hand corner, last captain of the President Warfield, but he had been a seaman on the Chesapeake Bay for 60-some years and was a captain on the Old Bay Line for 44 years. He was uh, quite the renowned mariner, and it was even said that he entertained Presidents Taft and Roosevelt at his table on the President Warfield. That's Pretty, pretty impressive, I think. Captain Samuel Chapman in the middle, he was my captain. He was the one that took me under his wing, took me on the wheelhouse uh, and made, made just you know, changed my life forever, basically. <laughs> and Captain Patrick Parker, captain of the city of Norfolk, uh, at the time she stopped running, uh, when he became a captain in 19, what was it, 19? I don't remember what year it was. He was only 30 years old. And these men would start their careers as deckhands or freight handlers or whatever, and they'd work their way up through the ranks, become a quartermaster, the, the fellow that runs the wheel, and then later take the tests to become captains. So Captain Parker was the uh, one of the earliest. Captain Marshall, down in the lower left-hand corner, is noted for bringing the state of Maryland through the, the horrendous Chesapeake Atlantic hurricane of 1933, which absolutely decimated the Chesapeake Bay region. Captain Parker, uh, Captain Foster down in the lower right-hand corner, he was the senior master of the Old Bay Line after Captain Almy retired and was a senior master at the time the company celebrated its centennial anniversary. Captain William S. Walker, 
he was a relief captain, basically. Most of the time he was the chief officer, but he also took me under his wing. So he's a very special person to me. The other person that was very important to the ship, but you didn't see him quite as much as the captains, was the purser. The purser was essentially the hotel manager on the ship. He was responsible for when you got on board, you turned your tickets over to him. He gave you your, your stateroom key, gave you all the information you needed to know to be a passenger. Uh, but he was also responsible for managing the operations of, of the ship, taking care to make sure that the stewards department had all the linens, that the, the, the galley department had all of the, uh, the uh, iron, I mean, I mean the, the silver and, uh, and the crockery and so forth to make sure everything was in tip-top condition because these vessels were very, very famous for their impeccable appearance and also for their impeccable cuisine. The guys you never, virtually never saw were the engineers down in the lower part of the vessel, but boy, were they important because they were, they were in charge of everything mechanical and electrical on that steamboat. And uh, to have pictures of them in the first place is pretty uh, unusual. To have color pictures of them in the first place is absolutely astounding. The upper right-hand picture shows the boiler room on the city of Norfolk. She had two boilers, uh, four boilers, two across the room from each other. You can see the two of them, those, those two plaque structures there. And then on the right hand, left-hand side is the engine room of the uh, District of Columbia, which was a later addition to the old Bayline fleet. Uh, and the, the gentleman there is operating the reversing levers that take the engines out of their one mode and, and set it up to run in reverse. And Chief Donald Whitlock down at the lower right hand and he was the chief engineer he was the head guru when it came to all of these mechanical issues and he's standing next to the engine room telegraphs where uh, instructions would come down for the bridge give me half speed give me two-thirds speed pick me a start and the other round uh engine room telegraph that he has there is what he would use to respond to those messages so these men were very very important you just didn't see them very often i mentioned earlier that the boats in the early days were wood fueled they were they later became coal and coal was the main fuel for so many years, and this is how they had. <clears throat> this is how they had to add a load, load the the coal onto the ships. They bring a big big barge up alongside the ship, piled high with with coal, and then these men would fill wheelbarrows with coal, run them through the hatch in the side of the ship, and dump it down into the coal bunkers. Uh, the bottom picture shows two of the steamers with big piles of coal on the on the barges next to them. Dirty, 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 dirty job. They had to try to close up all the windows and all of the doors on the ship because the coal, must, coal, coal dust was everywhere. And when the uh, refueling process was finished, then they had to go through and wipe off all the railings. And <laughs> it, was not, it was not a pretty job. But, and plus, the, these poor guys were subjected to um, um, digesting coal, coal smoke, which, of course, you know, who knows what that caused for them down the road. There were times of trials and tribulations for the boats down through the years. These are a couple of examples in the 20th century. Uh, a lot of people that don't live in this area don't realize that the Chesapeake Bay can, sold, can freeze up solid. It hasn't done it for a long time. 1977, I think, was the last time. But over the years, the boats had to contend with getting through some very, very heavy ice. And the top picture shows the city of Norfolk off the mouth of Maryland's Magothy River in 1934, just kind of crunching her way through. And it was said by the passengers that were on those trips when they were crunching through the ice, you said it was going to be a quiet good night's sleep. It was anything but with the crunching ice going along the side of the ship. The lower picture shows the state of Maryland. It looks like she's actually stopped at this point, but I'm not sure, sure where it is. And again, the, the ice 
anywhere 12 to 15, 16, 17, 18 inches, some places over two feet thick. And, and the upper left-hand corner was the, the last uh, ice adventure for the old Bay Line. This was the city of Richmond in 1961, just above Baltimore Light, just above the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. And she got stuck in the ice, uh, two feet of ice. Took them all day to get her out of the ice and get her up to Baltimore. That's what the icebreaker vessel alongside is doing. She was 12 hours late getting into Baltimore. And Captain Chapman said that even at this late stage in life when there weren't as many total freeze-ups of the bay, um, this was the longest he had ever been stuck in ice. Also, part of the trials and tribulations were this un, uh, in, incredible accident that occurred. Uh, each boat, each company had two boats. One was going south at night, one was coming north at one night. And the Chesapeake Line's York River Line had two vessels, the city of Richmond and the city of Annapolis that ran up to, to West Point. One night in February 1927, it was extremely foggy off the mouth of the Potomac River, and they plowed almost head on at each other. It's just one sister ship and the other. The Annapolis was sunk in the collision. And this was the, the Richmond as she looked when she got back to Baltimore uh, to have a new bow put on. Yet she went on many, many more adventures. Because the city of Annapolis was lost, the Chesapeake Line was handicapped. It didn't have the necessary vessels that it needed. So it contracted the Newport News Shipbuilding Company to build a new steamer, the Yorktown, which came out in 1928. And as it turned out, she was the very last night boat built for service on the Chesapeake Bay. Then we get into cruising, 1930s style. <clears throat> During the lean years of the Depression, the, the, the backup boat of the Bay Line and the Chesapeake Line just kind of sat in Baltimore. They didn't have anything for them to do. Then somebody hit on the idea, well, let's have some cruises. This was something that had never been tried before. We're going to take the boat and leave Baltimore at 630 on a Friday evening, sail down. When you get up on Saturday morning, you're cruising in the Atlantic Ocean off the, off the coast of Virginia, down to Virginia Beach. You're out there for several hours. And you come back into the bay. You drop anchor off of Ocean View down there near where the Bay Bridge Tunnel comes along today. They stay there all day long. A launch will take the passengers ashore. They'd have weenie roasts on the beach. If you wanted to, you could fish either off the off the, uh, the the beach or off the dock, and then you bring your fish on board, and the chef would prepare it for your dinner that night. Pretty pretty darn civilized. And then they would stay there until after the, after night, after midnight on, sat, on Saturday. Then they'd sail over and up onto the York River. They'd stop at Yorktown. Passengers could then get off and go to visit Yorktown, Jamestown, or, or Williamsburg, and then back onto the boat, back down to Norfolk, take a tour of the, of the Norfolk area, back up to Baltimore by 6.30 on Wednesday morning. And this was before any of the big ocean-going cruise lines came up with the idea of the idea of using your ship as a hotel. And so they called these houseboat cruises. And the image is pretty interesting because it shows what it probably looked like down between the Virginia Capes as she came through, people dancing, people fishing, and, and what have you. And it lasted for a good long time, practically right up until the beginning of World War II. Also during the 1930s, the, the layup vessel, in most cases it was the state of Virginia, was chartered for different operations. Lots of civic groups, organizations, political groups, and what have you, would um, have uh, conventions on board. And this is what a convention uh, looked like as they headed out of Pier, 3, Pier 10 Light Street, just packed with conventioneers who <laughs> really lived it up on these trips. 1933, August 1933 was an extraordinary weather event in this area. The Chesapeake and Potomac 
the hurricane of ni August 1933, where the storm unusually came right up the Chesapeake Bay, which it doesn't normally happen. The city of Norfolk and the state of Maryland were heading down the bay that night. They had no inkling that there was a hurricane. They, as Captain Parker said, when we left, it was just a fresh breeze. When it got down around the mouth of the Potomac, and it just really started to really carry on and carry on. Uh, the city of Norfolk was banged up so badly that they had to get her out of the channel and get her over into the, sh the shallows, and she uh, went aground um, in Tangier Sound and stayed there for a couple of days. The state of, Maryland, state of Maryland did make it all the way to Norfolk, but by the time she got there, everybody's looking around saying, where is the city of Norfolk? She's supposed to be here. And it's amazing that as late as 1933, a 300-foot vessel could go missing in the Chesapeake Bay, but that was the case. She was out there for almost for better than 24 hours until a flyer from the naval base uh, discovered her. But for some reason, why in 1933 did a steamship not have a radio to tell what was going on? So they just had they, they just had to wait it out. But it was a very dramatic thing there for a while. They're looking for it and then going to get the passengers off of it. Another instance of trial and tribulation, just a few years later in July of 1937, the city of Baltimore had just left Baltimore, was headed down the bay, and was right off the mouth of the Patapsco River when she caught fire. And this picture on the top gives an idea what the blaze, it must have been quite a conflagration, looked like from the shore in those days. And then the next morning, all that was left, the city of Baltimore, was her steel hull and her steel engine and boiler casing. Everything else totally consumed. They never really figured out what what uh, caused that fire, but the captain had always insisted that he thought it had to be an act of sabotage because of the problems that the steamship lines were having with the cruise unions. So there they were. They had, they had a ship that was sunk in a collision. They brought a new one on board. Had another one was lost in a fire. They really weren't in very good shape as you got toward the end of the 1930s. Now let's digress for a moment. One of the things you always heard about in Bayline advertisements was, oh, the cuisine is just outstanding. But you never saw what the cuisine was. What was on the menu? What did the dining rooms look like? So in the book, I tried to, to address that, and I think we had a little bit of success. This is a breakfast menu on the right, on the left, from the steamer Carolina in 1884. And it's kind of interesting to look at the, some of the fare that they served for breakfast back in those days, not the sort of thing that we tend to think of as breakfast food. The dining room in this vessel was located on the lower deck all the way into the stern, all the way down underwater. So it wasn't wide open like some of the other ones later on. This may be hard to read, but what I want to do when we get out into the lobby, I've got actual copies of the menus if you all want to take a look at what's on, what's on some of these menus and some of the other paper ephemera. But that was a typical menu on an old Bayline boat, night after night after night. And it was widely known for its fantastic seafood, uh, Norfolk, uh, Turkey, and whatnot that this area was known for. And people traveled far and wide to take these boats so they could take advantage of these meals. They were wonderful, wonderful meals. And by this time, with the, the new boats in the 33, the, the dining room has been brought up from the hold, put on the after end of the, of the main deck with windows that wrapped around so the passengers could enjoy the passing scenery. Breakfast was no small affair either. You could get any kind of any number of varieties of breakfast, a little bit of everything for everybody, and uh, magnificently prepared. And these are some examples of china and silver off of the old Bayline boats. Um, this stuff is 
real collector's items materials today. You can see it going for hundreds and hundreds of dollars on the memorabilia market. So this is some, some really treasured stuff. I'm glad to say that I have accumulated over the years. The other thing that you don't hear as much about because you hear about the passenger service on these vessels is that the fact that they were also freight carriers and they carried a lot of cargo. 600 tons of cargo a night is, is, is not small potatoes. And this will give us a little bit of indication of the kind of cargo that they carried back in the 19th century. It seems that whiskey and that sort of thing was always very prominent <laughs> among the, the, the cargoes that these, these vessels carried. But they also carried construction goods from areas that didn't necessarily have manufacturing capabilities and the like. And up in the upper right-hand corner, upper left-hand corner, is a couple of crewmen working on the electric elevators that lowered the cargo down into the lower deck on the city of Richmond and city of Norfolk. The upper right-hand is the Old Bay Line Pier on Light Street in Baltimore with all of the horse-drawn carriages backed up unloading their cargo. Down below, we've got uh, a classic example of manual labor where they had to bring these, I think these things are big uh, containers of concrete or something of that nature. But each one, you had to come off by an individual operator. Talk about labor intensive. And then the lower left hand, these were called lighters. They were basically covered barges. And especially in Baltimore, the barges would be taken by tugboat around the harbor to the different companies, loaded their cargo on, came back, tied up next to the steamer, loaded it onto the steamer uh, in time for the nightly departure down to Norfolk. So it was very, very lucrative part of the business. In fact, toward the end, it was the freight that was keeping them going, not the passenger business, which had basically become a, a seasonal vacation type of thing. But after, World, after the Civil War, the Bay Line found that there was so much cargo needing to be moved in the Chesapeake Bay region, especially as the South rebuilt, that it decided it needed a fleet of cargo-only vessels. So they commissioned several freight vessels. They didn't operate on a fixed schedule. They went when and where the business took them. So they were all over the Chesapeake region, even up the, the rivers, the Rappahannock, the Choptank, all the way to the northern end of the Chesapeake. And that's a, a, a freight, freight certificate up there from 1865, and it looks like it's for four tubs of butter. They, again, they carried a little bit of everything. The freighter Seaboard was one of the earliest freighters that they had built, and their design was a little different. They put all the machinery toward the latter after end of the ship, so the whole forward part of the vessel could be given over strictly to the carriage of cargo. And the white deck house on the top was simply the housing for the crew. The Gaston was probably the most interesting of their freight vessels over the years. She came out in uh, 1881. In fact, she was such a pretty little vessel and the really nice lines that the captain of the, the president of the company uh, facetiously re referred to her as my flagship. And it's an interesting touch here. Do you notice the, the eagle on top of the pilot house? I don't know why the freighter had an eagle on top of the pilot house. The passenger ships didn't. But again, she lasted a long time and went up and had a long career up on the Great Lakes after sailing on the Chesapeake. <clears throat> These are modern day pictures that Mr. Marks made of uh, cargo being loaded and unloaded uh, on the boats. The upper left-hand corner shows reams and reams of newsprint that were brought up from the south. A lot of the mills down to the south made, made newsprint and came up to Baltimore on a daily basis, filled those freight decks night after night after night. Uh, we're bringing some cargo off with an electric truck over here on the right side. Again, very labor-intensive, very labor-intensive. And down at the bottom, the city of Norfolk is at her Light Street Pier, and here you can see uh, a lot of the, the lighters that are lined up against her. It's almost like a veritable 
navy of lighters. Here's one down here, 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 here. A whole fleet, and they're loading. They're either loading or unloading at the pier in Baltimore. And um, they, they did this all day long during the day, and the ship was tidied up and ready to go by 6.30 that night for the next trip down the bay. Again, in the 30s, during the lean period, they were looking for ways to uh, make a few extra bucks, and it was about a passenger said, well, I'd really like to take my car down to Norfolk. Well, if the freight deck wasn't as full as it normally would have been because of the depression, let's put the cars on the freight deck. So they did. And this was proved to be a very lucrative undertaking for the company. This was a, a, a an advertisement from 1940, I believe it was, Four dollars to put a car on the on the on the boat. As late as 1961, it was only eight dollars. Really, really, really was quite a remarkable bargain. In the early days, because they were all worried about bringing cars on board with tanks full of gasoline, they drained the tanks of gasoline before they got on the boat, which made for an interesting uh, morning on a, on arrival for the for the owner trying to figure out how to get get his gas tank filled up again. In 1940, the old bay line celebrated its anniversary. And it celebrated a merger. By this time, it owned the name Old Bay Line. It didn't have to be called an old established Bay Line any longer. And they mounted a big festival to observe the centennial of this company. And this is the, the company's home pier at Light Street, all decked out with signs and flags and, and whatnot, uh, streamers, uh, to celebrate that anniversary uh, on May 23rd, 1940. The President Warfield is at the dock. Uh, she would make a special voyage down the bay that night and what a voyage it must have been. They brought costumed interpreters on board to tell skits of what it was like to operate on the boats in, in days gone by. Uh, we see them here on the left, right-hand side. And then on the left-hand side is a picture of Maryland Governor Herbert R. O'Connor cutting the anniversary cake to um, observe the, the centennial. Gentleman off to the left over there is Robert E. Dunn, who was the president of the Old Bay Line. 1940, no war yet. And they're thinking, we are in really great shape now. We've got this company that's gone for 100 years. We're merging with the Chesapeake Line finally. And it gave them not just three ships, but now it gave them the Chesapeake Line three ships. So it had a fleet of six. And business is starting to build a little bit as the defense buildup starts. And more and more servicemen are taking the boats down the bay uh, to Norfolk. So it was good for them to have all six vessels. The merger with the Chesapeake Line took place in 1942, and it brought together the three railroad owners. The Seaboard Railroad was the original owner of the old Bay Line. In fact, back in the Dark Ages, the Bay Line owned the Seaboard, but somewhere along the way, it all got changed around. Southern and Atlantic Coast Line owned the Chesapeake Line, so they all came together with this triumvirate of railroad owner ownership, which kept the boats going until... Um, many, many years later. And I think these railroads really wanted to keep the Bay Line going because it enabled them to get their operations into Baltimore in an indirect way because their rails didn't reach Baltimore. So that was a, a big big plus for those railroads to keep these boats running. Then comes World War II. Well, the Bay Line thinks it's going to be just like previous wars. We're just going to take lots and lots of people between Baltimore and Norfolk and all will be right with the world. And then they said, we did it before, we're doing it again. But Uncle Sam had different ideas. They took the city, uh, the, the state of Maryland and the state of Virginia, and you saw what they looked like earlier, and converted them into these army freighters, which carried troops down around in the Caribbean theater for the bulk of the war. But as someone said when they saw the state of Maryland, it says, same name, but you would never know her. And I mean, talk about a complete redo. 
they were so extensively altered that when the war was over, there was no way the old Bay Line could take them back and get them rebuilt. So they had sailed their last for the Bay Line. The Yorktown, which came over to the Bay Line in the 1942 merger, she was also taken for service, but this was a different operation. They were going to take the wharf, they were going to take the Yorktown, the Warfield, and six other East Coast steamboats across the Atlantic in September when the, the gales were at their worst because the British had need of small, shallow graft vessels to operate in the British Isles where they could go into shallow waters, where they could carry troops and passengers, where they could act as accommodation ships, where they could be used for amphibious training. And so a convoy was assembled of nothing but steamboats to go across the North Atlantic in September 1942. It was, And when those boats were pulled, all that was left to, to tote the load back in, on the bay was the city of Norfolk and the city of Richmond, which they had planned to retire because of their age. The, the Richmond was... 29 years old. The rich of the Norfolk was 30 years old. And once the details of the merger were ironed out, well, okay, well, we'll scrap them and keep the new ones. These were left to tote the major load, and boy, did they do a great job of toting it. Meanwhile, they go overseas. The, the various vessels have various uh, adventures over there operating in the British waters, but President Warfield probably had the most interesting career of all. On D plus 30 days, she sailed across to Omaha Beach in France and was set up, as we see in this picture, as the operation ship, the headquarters ship for all of Omaha Beach, so that the big brass that ran the operations up there had, they op they lived off, off of this ship, they operated off of this ship, and they really liked this ship because they had kept a couple of nice staterooms on the top deck for all the Army brass. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was a nice assignment. And every ship that came in and out of that port had to salute little old President Warfield. In 1945, they took her across to France, and she ran for a while on the Seine between Le Havre and Rouen, carrying troops on into the interior. After the war, President Warfield comes back home. Bayline took a look at her and says, she's been too beaten up for us. We can't, we can't afford to redo her. So she laid in the reserve fleet for a while, and then she was purchased by a company called the Weston Trading Company, which was a front for the Jewish underground organization Haganah, which was gathering... Uh, surplus ships to be manned by volunteer American crews to take Jewish refugees from Europe into Palestine, which at that point was being mandated by the British. The British didn't want didn't want this to happen, and it put up a spirited defense. So this is the warfield loading her passengers at at uh, Saint France in July of 1947. Now remember, she could carry 600 passengers. They had on board for this voyage 4,500. People just jammed in everywhere. And they started across the Mediterranean, and the British fell in behind them, escorted her the whole way. The idea was get her right to the edge of Palestinian territorial waters, turn her inland, run her up on the beach, get in the shallow water where the British warships couldn't follow, and, and get, the, um, get the refugees overboard. However, it's believed that the British tried to stop her while they were still, still in international waters. And there was a long protracted debate over, over whether that was in fact the case. But uh, there was this battle between the refugees on the ship and the British Marines. They were boarding this, this, this little old steamboat and they were banging up against the side of it with their destroyers, ripping open side, big chunks of the side of this ship. She, she was stout enough that she stayed afloat and they were finally able to take her into the harbor at, at, at Haifa, Israel. And this is what she looked like tying up in Haifa, a really far cry from what she looked like 
on the old bay line. All of those, what you see on the top decks there, those are the refugees, 4,500 of them. And she was, as, as she was being escorted into Haifa, they flipped over her name board where it said President Warfield. And on the other side, it said Exodus 1947. And this is the, this is the story behind the novel, behind the movie, but the novel and the movie don't tell the real story. If you want to read a good book about this, simply called Exodus 1947 by David C. Hawley, best telling of that story from beginning to end. She laid in Haifa Harbor for a number of years and, and ultimately caught fire and was destroyed. So where was the bay line left at this point? It still had the two old Victorian steamers, the uh, Richmond and the Norfolk. And this is the view of some of the, the gingerbread and everything that was aboard those boats. And they were beautiful, beautifully maintained right up to the very, very end. Bayline tried to uh, come up with new ships after World War II. It just simply didn't happen. The top picture is what a, an attack transport from World War II would have looked like had it been converted to an old Bayline boat. And the bottom shows what uh, a brand new boat built from the, uh, the, the ground up would have been. The government gave the Bayline $3 million for the ships that it had requisitioned. But it, when it went to sea about getting one of these operations, one of these new boats built, $8 million per ship. There's just no way in the world that they could, could afford it. So they kept on with these beautiful old Victorian-style vessels. They were able to add another ship in 1949, Norfolk and Washington Line Steamer, uh, District of Columbia, which had been badly damaged in a collision. And she ran on an old bay line run from Washington to Norfolk until 1957. But she gave them that flexibility, the third vessel that they needed in case they had to have a... a uh, a ship come in when one of the others went in the shipyard. 18, 1955 pretty much uh, was the beginning of the end for the Bay Line. Uh, there were ma massive union issues. Uh, and you can see here that the president of the company minced no words as to what he thought about dealing with the unions. Apparently the Bay Line was accused of firing some people who wanted unions and so forth. Went on for weeks and months. Boats were tied up. Everybody thought that well, that's going to be the end of it. But they did come up with some kind of amicable settlement and the boats continued. But the downside of it was while they were tied up, a lot of their freight customers took their business elsewhere and they never came back. And that was the bread and butter of the operation. In 1960, the Bay Line, or the government, which owned the pier at Old Point Comfort, finally shut it down and the Bay Line stopped operating there. And it had been there practically right from the beginning, from the 1840s. And here we see the city of Norfolk sidling up to the dock and a pretty good uh, crowd of passengers waiting to get on board and make the trip up to um, up to Baltimore. In the latter years, 18, uh, 1957, 57, 58, 59, they had school tours and school groups from all over the country would come to take the trip on the steamboat down the bay to, uh, to Norfolk. They would come into Washington, tour the Washington sites, take the boat down from Washington to Norfolk, Williamsburg, Yorktown, come back up, take the trip up to Baltimore. And it got to be so busy in 1958 that they needed two boats signing side by side in order to take care of all of these, these youngsters. And that lasted from 58 and 59. But by that time, old, old, old man time was starting to catch up with the boats. It was becoming more and more difficult, more and more expensive to keep these old boats in repair. Company tried everything that it could think of to try to either keep them going a little while longer, see if the railroad owners would spring for brand new ships. None of it ever happened. And then on April 11, 1962, the city of Richmond made her last departure from Baltimore. Very mournful sounding whistle, I can tell you. I was there. 
and the poor ship looks like she's had it anyway. She's been spending the winter banging through the ice, and that's why the hull is all banged up. And then on the right, the chief officer, William S. Walker, made the very fast, very last entry in the log depicting two old Bayline steamers crossing in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay last time in 122 years. And when a ship finishes its voyage, usually the last command that comes from the bridge is finished with engines. And on April 14, 1962, city of Norfolk's pulling in here behind the city of Richmond, which had already ended her days, and finished with engines was the real thing this time. No more. Not only did the old Bayline die that day, the whole institution of the American night boat died. They were the last of the breed. They stayed 20 years longer than the, than the others, and they did it in class the whole way. It was a really first-rate operation. And here's another one of Mr. Leslie Lorson's paintings, and I love this particular painting because I kind of think that this is what you, they might have looked like if you were passing one on, on a moonlit night going down the Chesapeake Bay. And although the old, well, last three old steamers are no longer with us, one was sunk, one was scrapped, one burned, at least you can say that the old bay line itself still sails on in affectionate memory. Thank you all very much. <laughs> I think we're going to have some time for questions if anybody has any questions. I think somebody's coming around with a microphone. Because <laughs> my old ears ain't what they used to be. <laughs> yes, what's your question, ma'am? Uh, you mentioned a collision and a fire, but you didn't mention what, what happened to the passengers on those two uh, incidents. In the fire? Both the fire and the collision of those yeah, two Yeah, you know, the collision was not, not that bad. There was, fortunately, there was only one fatality because they hit almost that on. But the, the fire on the city of Baltimore started in the freight area and moved upward into the passenger accommodations. The people were just literally leaping off the, off the ship. It was so bad. The casualty count on that one was only three, surprisingly. And they never had any major accident that had a, a huge casualty count. You did have fires down through the years. It was unmistakable. The boats were built of wood. And the captains and the officers, especially as the boats got older, a little concerned about um, you know, that, that wooden construction. But now, fortunately, there were incidents, but there weren't any tragedies, shall we say. <laughs> Anyone else? I think we got one down here in the front. Good afternoon. Um, quick. Yes, sir. You mentioned uh, a boat that went up to Richmond earlier, but uh, I wasn't clear as to how vital that business was through the years up until you know, through the 20s, 30s, 40s. The, 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 uh, boat traffic from Norfolk up to Richmond. Yeah, well, they ran from they ran primarily from Baltimore. Up, up to Richmond, and the, re the reason they did they, the reason they went up the York River, it was a shorter run. You wouldn't have had to come all the way down the Lower Bay and go up to James, and, and have to contend with so much of the twisting upper part of the James. Um, you would get the boat would leave Baltimore at six thirty in the evening. You'd get to West Point, Virginia, yeah, pretty early, about five thirty, and the train would be waiting there on the dock. And you got on board the train, and within a few minutes, you were on your way to Richmond, and you were there within an hour. So it was a pretty efficient operation. The, 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 the James River run from Baltimore really wasn't terribly successful because it took so long. It took about 18 hours, whereas an overnight trip 
from Baltimore to risk to West Point to Richmond, just maybe 12 hours at that most. So made a lot more sense. <laughs> Anyone else? Good afternoon. I'm all the way back. Yes. Good afternoon and thank Hi. you. It was very enjoyable conversation. Question, how far did the ships sail up the James River? Now, I don't know the geography that much, but I think there's a place called Dutch Gap in the, in the James River. And they got up that far, and I think that's where the river started to do a little twisting. In there, and they found it difficult to maneuver the big side wheelers up there because they were so wide. And uh, one of them, uh, actually was on her very first voyage, got stuck on the rocks up there and was stuck there for several days. And that's when it was decided that we needed to design a special boat with twin propellers that could maneuver a lot easier. So it, it, the, the run from Baltimore simply did not last that long. The run from Baltimore to West Point was a much more sensible operation. Thank you. Anybody? Yes, sir. Okay. Ah, uh, yes. You showed pictures in your presentation of uh, various captains of the ships. Mm -hmm. uh, by any chance, are there any surviving records of any other employees or possibly ship manifest of passengers? I would like to find that if, if there. The question was, what are, are there archives or whatever out there that we could talk to people that ran on these boats? There are still some folks around, and there are some oral histories. Fortunately, the Steamboat Era Museum in Irvington, Virginia, has done a really good job of um, putting together oral histories. Uh, I had the, the, the luck to be able to interview several of the captains and several of the others, and I'm certainly glad to have that. that the, the best interview that I got, though, was from the second radio operator of the Yorktown, who was on her when she was torpedoed in the middle of the North Atlantic. And let me tell you, that was quite a story. <laughs> But um, there's a lot of there's a lot of material out there. There aren't as many books anymore. There used to the last book length treatment of the Bayline, I think, was 1961. Uh, and there have been several nice steamboat books since then, but nothing nothing really recently. So I figured the time was right to to, to do it. <laughs> anyway. Thanks very much, everyone, for attending. Um, Jack is going to be in the lobby.